my mom and I, single parents, you know, grew up with, it was me and my mom. It's like a Gilmore Girls situation uh, to some extent, mm-hmm. I like to call it. She told me from a very early age that she had had an abortion. And it was something, though, that when she initially told me was difficult for her to tell me to begin with. And I remember my initial reaction when I was a kid, I did get angry mm-hmm. um, based on like hearing what my friends and their parents were saying mm-hmm. about abortion being wrong. Welcome back for another episode of Interstates and Heartbreak. So today's episode is going to be a bit different than many of its predecessors. And I think, you know, oftentimes when we think about dating and relationship podcasts, it's very easy to default to like bad first date stories or tales about getting ghosted, which clearly I love talking about myself. But this week, I wanted to take the time to highlight a different topic in response to the Texas legislature making abortions illegal after six weeks. And sex, shocker, is a very central part of many relationships and also has the potential to result in pregnancy. And so pregnancy and the many choices that follow can really just become a very natural extension of relationship issues, whether they are a wanted pregnancy or not. And so that is why I wanted to take today to bring on someone who is qualified to discuss the impact that Texas's legislation has had on these choices. And I'm so honored to have Jordan Gaspore. She's an award-winning podcast producer. She's an investigative journalist with over a decade of journalism experience. She graduated from Texas State University and City University of London and has had work published in various outlets across the U.S. and the U.K., including but not limited to NPR, CNN, and Mother Jones. And she is the co-founder of Local Switchboard NYC. So clearly, she is one of the best people who I could have had on to talk about this topic, and I'm so honored to have you here today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for that introduction. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, and I really appreciate having you. Like I said, I just feel like you were such a great fit for this discussion, not only because of the extensive research that you've done around this topic, but you also definitely have direct insight into the aftermath as someone who kind of has a sense of what the climate is currently like. Yeah, yeah. I'm a native Texan and I split my time between Texas and New York City. All my family, Mm. for the most part, is still in Texas. But I do want to just preface that right now I am in Queens. I do spend a lot of time uh, and energy talking about Texas and still have a Texas driver's license. So very much still still tied to Texas for better or worse. Yes, still Texan at heart. Yes, for whatever that means, better and worse, still still supporting that state uh, yeah. in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, absolutely. So I know I mentioned this during my initial conversation with you, but when I first heard about the legislation, I wanted to conduct an interview with someone who could provide some professional insight and maybe naively, I was like, surely by the time I get around to finding a guest, it'll be too late because this will be overturned. And unfortunately, that is not the case. And you know, It's still in contention, of course, and so wanted to give a little bit of the background. And so 
for anyone who might be listening to this retroactively, at the time of recording, this is happening on October 22nd. So naturally, there's a chance that things might change by the time that the episode is released. And, you know, I have some knowledge on this. I'm sure you have much more. But as recently as this week, I know that the Biden administration asked the Supreme Court to intervene and suspend the legislation on the grounds of unconstitutionality. So truly anything could happen. But, you know, at this point, that has not yet happened. So I would love to kind of dive in a little bit more about the legislation and what it means. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a good point, just first and foremost, to bring up that the idea of this type of legislation has been in discussion for years prior to this legislation taking place. I always like to think of Texas as being very central to the discussion around abortion from Roe v. Wade, which was very Texas. Not only was the lawyers Texas, everyone seemed to be involved was from Texas. And so it doesn't surprise me now that we've sort of come full circle on this and it goes back to Texas. Mm hmm. And growing up, I will just say, too, that in a community that was very anti-abortion, it doesn't surprise me that something like SB8 would take place and would be of a popular opinion in yeah. the state legislature. Yeah, which is all great context to have. And so I know many people who are listening are aware of the legislation, but just a few basic details as a refresher. Yes. So it's also known as Senate Bill 8, and yes. it bans abortions after six weeks into a pregnancy. And this is the first six-week abortion ban in the U.S. And rather than relying on government enforcement, it actually empowers individuals to sue anyone who performs an abortion <laughs> or facilitates an abortion. And so... I think, you know, that the legality of what this means has yet to be fully determined. But like, I've been listening to some thought pieces and some news articles, which is like, if an Uber driver drives someone to a Planned Parenthood, that person could, in theory, be sued for taking this patient. Exactly, exactly. The last thing I had heard when this initially went forward, and people were saying you could, for, for lack of a better term, rat on your neighbors or rat on your community members for, you know, $10,000, that mm -hmm. the website where you could put in these tips that it shut down because so many people were flooding it with tips. Wow. On people connected or people getting oh. an abortion. And that surprised me. In in one respect, I guess I understand in the sense that you're you may be anti-abortion already and because of financial situations during the pandemic that people would be mm -hmm. more in line with doing a tip line but it was also just very strange to me that the state would even set up something like that yeah very strange it's like a weird vigilante law exactly right yeah. yeah. And apologies. My fiance now just got on a call. So you might hear a, a gentleman who is very uh, pro-abortion rights, by the way. But, <laughs> yes. Um, love to hear it. Love to hear it. <laughs> so you might hear him talking in the background. No worries. But yeah, the tip sheet or the tip line tip website was very unsettling to me. And I feel like it's also interesting because from my understanding, that's a large reason why the Supreme Court stated that they actually cannot rule on the unconstitutionality of this, because they're saying that it's like if it's citizens who are the ones who are enforcing this and not the government, then it's like this loophole that allows it to kind of take place. Exactly. And that's even scarier to me to say that. It just sets a really disgusting, disturbing precedent. Because I know other states like Mississippi, for instance, are also considering their legislator considering a similar bill to Texas. So this mm. already has had waves. And who knows what other states, but Mississippi is the one that I know of that's considering this. 
Do you know if they were considering it prior to this actually being enacted or are they kind of looking at this and saying, oh, this seems to be a success story? It seemed to me that, I mean, Mississippi also similar in alignment with Texas historically about abortion rights. So it mm-hmm. didn't surprise me either, but it mm-hmm. seems like they saw Texas as a blueprint that they could then model after. I think just having more confidence that this passed in Texas. So mm-hmm. now we can do this too. So I do yeah. see a cause and effect. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So I guess, you know, I'd love to get a little bit more of your perspective as someone who has had conversations with abortion providers, with people very intimately involved with the subject. And I guess, have you heard anything from the perspective of the Texas legislator, legislature? Wow, that's a hard word to say. It is a hard. It is hard. <laughs> what is the justification for putting a ban into effect at six weeks? Yeah. So I will go back. The original law that was in place banned abortion after 12 weeks. So after the first trimester. So Roe v. Wade fought for being able to have the right to an abortion in the first trimester. Mm -hmm. And so 12 weeks post the six weeks. However, the problem with six weeks is that most women or most people do not know that they are pregnant at six weeks. Missed Mm -hmm. a period, other various issues. So 12 weeks allowed people to actually have the time to figure out that they were pregnant. So I just wanted to say that because I don't believe that that was made clear earlier either. And I believe six weeks is this sort of medium of understanding. Most people don't know that they're pregnant, Mm -hmm. so they will have to have the child anyway. But Mm -hmm. also saying, hey, like, we're still saying it's cool to get an abortion. It's fine. Just not after six weeks. Yeah, It's like we're trying to have it both ways for Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. But understanding that we know now you're still going to have to have the child because you won't know you're even pregnant. I I find it even more nefarious than saying we're going to ban abortion completely. Yeah, because I feel like it gives a little bit more justification around the ban, not in actuality, but I feel like to the people who are enforcing it, they think it gives more of a justification of like, well, you had this window and you missed it. So too bad. Exactly. Exactly. And it puts blame back on the person who is seeking an abortion. And Mm -hmm. I think is more shameful or putting more shame on that person than just saying we're banning it completely. Yeah, very true. That's such a good point. I didn't even consider that perspective. I mean, for me, it really is like the religious reason. I didn't quite answer the question of why I think this is going on. But I do believe that it is very much a religious reason and having attended Mm -hmm. a few protests and talking to, to different folks in the state around this issue. Yeah, I will say I was doing a little bit of research before our conversation. And so when I was Googling this, the first thing that came up, which I was not seeking out this source, but you know, like Wikipedia always comes up on the side when you Google something that has a prominent Wikipedia page. And so I guess colloquially, it's also known as the heartbeat bill. So I wasn't able to verify if that is something that is actually in the vernacular because it was the first time I'd heard it called that. But I guess it's also kind of, oh, well, at six weeks, a heartbeat can be detected. And so it kind of just makes it more of a tangible thing in terms of the process of pregnancy. And so that's kind of the timeline they're rallying around for that reason. Yeah, exactly. It is. It is an idea that at six weeks, you can 
hear that heartbeat. And Mm -hmm. even prior, though, to Senate Bill 8, there was legislation in the state of Texas that was significantly making it more difficult to get an abortion leading up to this. Whereas you went to an abortion provider, say I went to Planned Parenthood, they would have to explain to me all Mm. my different options, go through, um, how do I say this nicely, to me that they were being forced to talk you out of getting the abortion you had to wait 24 hours so you had to come back to the provider to get the abortion to make sure and an ultrasound oh my gosh yeah so just really being like look like are you sure like really just putting it in your face and i feel like that kind of works under the assumption that the people who are going in to have abortions haven't considered every option and like really really grappled with this decision it's not something that people just kind of stroll in and do on a whim (laughs) Exactly. It's not like someone on their way to go get coffee is like, oh, there's that Planned Parenthood. I think I might go get an abortion now. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how they made it seem. I completely agree with you that they thought the women doing this or the people doing this were just like flippant. We're we're morons. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For lack of a better word. I mean, I really think, you know, you think that women are are Mm -hmm. morons and that they can't make a decision on their own. Oh my gosh, it's pretty wild. So I guess, you know, as you've had conversations with abortion providers, have those conversations revealed anything about insight into the process of what it's like to get an abortion at various stages? Because for example, I know there's like an abortion pill, but you can only take that up until a certain point. Yeah, exactly. And I do just want to preface that plan B is not the Mm -hmm. abortion pill. So I just want to be clear that if someone is taking plan B in Texas, you don't need to go rat on them to the tip sheet site saying that they're getting an abortion. Yeah, completely different. One thing, though, that I've realized by talking to abortion providers and people in the community is that it's not a dark, scary place. It's not a meat shop or I don't know, like the dark images I think that some people mm-hmm. have of these places and that have been like portrayed in horror <laughs> movies that these people too are highly educated people that are providing this as a service. And this isn't even like the main thing that they yeah. do. And to understand that abortions aren't taking place 24 mm-hmm. 7 seven mm-hmm. days a week that i remember talking to one provider in austin and they were saying we only do this during a particular time frame on saturdays wow and i had asked like oh is there a need outside of that mm-hmm. or you know why are you you limiting this like thinking at first like oh like this should be available all the time yeah and they're like we just don't have the clientele like there's not that oh. many people actually yeah asking us for this service so we only you know have the funds for a doctor to come in during this time Mm -hmm. because we're not getting people and also they're not making tons of money this is not a money-making scheme yeah so i guess for the listeners based on you know you mentioned that planned parenthood it provides and other abortion clinics they provide so many services beyond just abortion so can you share what some of those services are that you know are just natural and normal to like everyday women's health and reproductive health. Exactly. I mean, pap smear, Mm -hmm. for instance, your annual exam, I've got into Planned Parenthood in Texas and here in New York, just to be able to have my annual exam to make sure I don't have cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. For instance, I've gone in to get prescribed birth control. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I've gone in for different things like that. Very basic things. I've gone in for UTI, mm-hmm. a urinary tract infection. You know, they also provide STI resources. It's a lot more than abortion. Yes. And like I said, with talking to that abortion provider too, where it was like, we only do this for a few hours every week. Yeah. And it's not like we have like a cattle call of people coming in. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so important to reinforce that because a lot of people do have the perspective that the highest volume of appointments are these abortion appointments. When in reality, I remember when I graduated from college, I was so used to just like running down to the UCLA like health center if I needed an appointment for anything. Like I could get an appointment the next day and then I graduated and I was like, oh, like what do I do if I need to do like an annual STD test? And I was like, okay, Plant Parenthood. And I'm so grateful that I had that at my disposal as someone who is still trying to figure out you know, my primary health care provider and all of those other adult things. Exactly. And if you don't have health insurance that I know when I was an undergrad, too, that I went to Planned Parenthood when I didn't have health insurance for different things that, you know, maybe I didn't feel comfortable at my university health clinic or my university health clinic didn't provide. Mm-hmm. And so someone that didn't have health insurance, you know, and it was affordable, if not free. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge for so many communities. Yeah. And if you're on Medicaid, Mm. I was on Medicaid when I was a freelance journalist for Mm. a couple of months. And I went to the Planned Parenthood here in New York City. Mm. And it was very easy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really great to shed light on all of the other amazing services that they provide. And I kind of wanted to transition into your perspective as a journalist, because Clearly, this is a topic that people have always been very impassioned about. Whatever stance you have, you're going to feel pretty strongly about it, chances are. So I guess, how do you maintain what I guess you would call journalistic integrity in the sense that, you know, you're expected to avoid bias in whatever reporting that you're doing? And clearly, you have your own very strong opinions. Yeah, so I do try to separate myself to some extent when I am reporting on this. And how I do that is like most stories that I'm working on, regardless if I agree with the person or not, is I always do try to find a point of connection Mm. with someone. So even if someone who is a stringent anti-abortionist, someone who thinks my mother who had an abortion is going to hell, Mm -hmm. this, that, and the other, I still try to find some point of connection and be able to have a discussion Mm -hmm. and really frame it as it's a discussion, it's a conversation. Because I have found depending on what publication I'm writing for, um, you contacting folks who primarily are anti-abortion already have a red flag and think I'm taking your words out of context. So I typically try to work with folks, though, too, to make it transparent, the process that I'm doing and to really make it transparent that I'm not going to to take your words out of context and that, you know, actually we can have this conversation and it doesn't have to turn into World War Three. And that's okay. I mean, we'll agree to disagree, but we're not here having a a personal debate. This is work. It's professional. So it's always just finding that point of that you can find something in common, actually, I feel like with even people that you do not agree with. (laughs) I think that's so powerful. And I am so impressed with the real journalism that you do and the fact that you do have to encounter a lot of people with opposing opinions and make them feel comfortable. And I think what you said about finding that point of connection, that's something that we can just remember in our everyday lives, because it's no secret that as a nation, we've become so much more polarized and so much more divided. And 
I think oftentimes people forget that individuals are more than just their stances. Exactly, exactly. And, to, you know, that this is an important topic. Um, and you might not agree with someone on this important topic, mm -hmm. but there might be other important topics as well, though, like you could think through and might have a form of connection. And, and I never go into something thinking I'm going to change someone's mind. Yeah, yeah, that's key. Also. Yeah. And that's okay. Mm hmm. So as you have those discussions with people who have opposing views from yours, like what arguments have they posed? And like, that can be either in support of SB8 specifically or other pro-choice legislature in general. Yeah, I mean, really, it is the religious aspect that I heard here, including people in my family, mm -hmm. why they are are against abortion mm -hmm. is that it's murder. It's mm -hmm. murder, it's murder, mm -hmm. it's murder. Mm -hmm. And that murder is illegal in our justice system and murder is uh, against God. And so people who do this are murderers. Yeah. And that really is what I hear repeatedly. And I have not heard anything quite uh, like anything quite different from that. Oh, interesting. Okay. When people, I mean, I feel like maybe that's because the people that are more impassioned, that are more vocal are going to be the ones that have that, that really extreme opinion that mm -hmm. it's murder. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, um, I have heard though, um, slightly less extreme when it comes to the abortion being legal at the second or third trimester mm, okay. and it being like that, unless it's a health reason for, for the person, uh, giving birth, but that also being like, well, it's a fully formed baby at that point, mm -hmm. it can live outside the womb. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so it gets tricky because yeah, it, it murder question mark death question mark mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah but it's really like at that point they say um because it's a fully formed baby or that it can live outside the womb and uh i also think that living outside the womb if that's the definition um that's a i think a, a poor argument to be made um having friends who uh were very much premature and lived outside the womb really early on in their life mm, yeah yeah it is so nuanced and like it does raise a lot of questions of like are you taking into account the quality of life outside of the womb and like you can't live independently outside of the womb which i guess you can't when you're an actual like baby who's born either but yeah it is i think it really is something that could be hotly debated because everyone's going to have varying opinions on what constitutes a life at various stages exactly and you know it's the unborn child's rights versus the mother's rights mother's rights as a fully formed adult yes a hundred percent and how do you balance that? And yeah, that's what I hear as well, too. It's like the baby can't speak for itself. The mother can. Yeah. Meaning that the baby, like they should advocate for the baby's rights. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> so. I have a lot of thoughts. I, I feel like I, I even need to process what my argument would be. But that's so complicated and complex. And I think it's really tough because I do think it's unfortunate when you are advocating for the rights of one being over the rights of another when the latter has the ability to express themselves and to really like make a case for themselves. So that's all I'll say. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So earlier, you also mentioned that you have visited a lot of clinics and that you've also had conversations with individuals who are protesting outside of these clinics. And I think we've all seen some media depiction of what that's like. And it 
either can be fictional or sometimes you might see it on the news, but it's the most radical version of what actually happens. So I'd like to hear what is that environment actually like? And when you're with those people who are probably at the height of passion around their stance on, you know, being pro-life, what are those discussions like? Yeah. So I'll say from my experience, it has not been an extreme example of people yelling and screaming and tons of people around. Even when I've gone to different rallies and I've seen folks there, even on the Capitol in Austin, Mm -hmm. that it it seemed that there are more um, uh, pro-abortion than anti-abortion folks when I go to these events. Okay. Here in New York, I was working on a story and I went with a group to a clinic in Jamaica, Queens, where I was an abortion clinic escort. Mm. So we were out there and that we were supposed to be there to volunteer to help in case there were protesters or anything Mm -hmm. to help people go into the clinic safely. And we went out there and there were maybe four or five, and it was slightly drizzling that day, but four or five folks that were silently protesting i wouldn't like it was it was they were holding some signs okay they were across the street from the clinic they did though approach me when i was Mm. coming to my volunteer shift to go inside to sign in i had a gentleman come approach me and had a pamphlet and was like you know explaining that i should not get an abortion i was like i'm actually here to volunteer as a clinic escort yeah you know and so that was interesting and a few times they tried to do that with women that would go inside but I wouldn't say it was harassing and they weren't yelling. They, there was no cursing. Mm-hmm. They weren't in anyone's face. Okay. Yeah. So that was interesting. I will say, though, too, just to preface all of this is that, you know, I had worked on a story where I was interviewing a bunch of people that had been abortion clinic escorts back in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. at various places across the country. And they will give you a different experience oh, than what okay. I had. Interesting. That times seem to have changed to a certain extent mm-hmm. but those those the, those folks that i spoke with that said like things got really heated from time to time got it so um, it's more radical in previous exactly year, decades okay that's really and maybe in different parts of the country it gets more radical in different communities mm-hmm. but like i said you know what i saw in austin and what i've seen in in queens mm-hmm. is not i mean it's ex- i guess i was expecting in queens it to be pretty calm yeah um, that's fair that's fair. But yeah, Austin's awesome. been pretty calm. Okay. So that's a perfect transition because I wanted to kind of transition into your personal perspective and your personal experience. And so like you mentioned, you grew up in Texas. So you grew up, can you remind me, in Austin specifically, or did you go to college in Austin, but you lived elsewhere? Yeah. So I'm from a town called Seguin, Texas, and Mm. it's about 45 minutes south of Austin. I have family in Austin. I have family all like in South Central Texas and Texas State University is also close in another town, but close to Austin. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of work. It's very, you know, you go up the I-35 to Austin and did a lot of work there as a journalist and Mm -hmm. interns, fellowships and yeah. Okay. Spent a lot of time there. Nice. All right. So we had discussed the argument that the legislation might not be as big of a deal because there is a perception that it's very easy to just travel to another state in order to get an abortion. And Texas is huge. You know, I'm not saying anything groundbreaking, but for those who might not have like a sense of scope and how big it is, can you share some details around like what are the logistics of crossing state borders in terms of like timing and like how far you have to travel depending on where you're located? Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll give my perspective and my personal experience. If I was staying 
in the Austin area, Seguin, where I was from, and I wanted to leave to go either to New Mexico to the left, Oklahoma to the top, Louisiana to the right, or Arkansas to the right. It would take me about eight hours, however way you want to to stretch it. And I've Mm -hmm. done that drive Mm -hmm. to all these different places from that little pocket. Yeah. And so that's eight hours in the car if you have a car. Mm -hmm. I personally did not have a car and did not have my license till I was 23 years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, thinking through that's gas money. That's, you know, if you could find a ride, if you don't have a car, public transportation is absolutely atrocious in Texas. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to take a bus, there's a good chance you may not be able to take a bus to a location in another state that would provide an abortion. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of issues of being able to just get out. Yeah. Unlike New York City or New York State, for instance, that has a lot more access to trains and public transportation. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I, this actually, this movie didn't take place in Texas, but I recently watched a movie called Unpregnant. Have you seen it? I haven't. I haven't heard of that. I think, I don't, I wouldn't say it's like an indie movie, but it was like a lesser known movie. I watched it on an airplane, but it's about a girl. I think she's in her senior year of high school. So she's probably 17. She gets pregnant and there's a law that you can't, receive an abortion without parental consent if you are underage. So she doesn't want to tell her parents. She has to travel to another state and the closest state that allows you to get an abortion underage is like New Mexico or something like that. And it's just showing, you know, like she doesn't have a job, like her parents are well off, but she can't ask them for money without telling them why. She has to enlist like an estranged friend because she doesn't want anyone to know. And like just all of the budgeting they have to do and all of the hiccups that they meet along the way. And of course, yes, this is a fictionalized dramatic movie, but I do feel like it did a good job of laying out some of the challenges that you might not consider if you are someone who is not extremely well off and doesn't have like the means of transportation to like make it out of your state. Exactly. And even thinking about even if you did work and you do have some kind of financial means, depending on what job you have, could you take time off? to go do this is this is not necessarily yeah. something that you could pick up and also you know i had said that that one planned parenthood only had you know offering abortions during a time frame on a saturday mm-hmm. so like yeah. all these logistical things yeah absolutely and you know i feel like i don't know if this is something that people would be considering but i feel like people might think oh well like you could drive and it's a lot of hours but what if you just flew and it's like that's not really an option right because you can't just like hop on a plane immediately after you have this procedure. You need someone still to drive you to and from the clinic. Like they will not admit you for the procedure unless you have someone physically present with you who can confirm that they are going to drive you home. So just a lot to consider. Yeah. Yeah. And I I just don't think that people do consider that. Yeah. So, yeah. So I guess since the legislation went into effect on September 1st, have you had any conversations that have highlighted the impact on clinics and like the volume of abortions that they've actually gotten to perform since this went into effect? So I haven't had any of those conversations yet. I mean, that's something definitely that I want to have, but I have not been back to Texas since June. Mm -hmm. So this was prior to. Mm -hmm. So I would like to have those conversations. I do stay up to date with some of the local news outlets there. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that people are doing the 
best coverage of this either. Yeah. I think the person that wrote the, I think, to me, best article in terms of actually explaining this in the best way possible is Mother Jones. And mm. it came out, I think, on October 15th. It was online. It might be in the magazine. But I would say if you look up Mother Jones's coverage and over time, Mother Jones personally has done a great job covering abortion rights. And I was a fellow with him and I had worked with him. So mm. uh, full disclosure, yeah. uh, my my bias might be showing about why I like <laughs> Mother Jones. But yeah, I think they do good work on this issue. Yeah, that's really great. And I think it's such a good point that you mentioned there hasn't been as much coverage. And I'm not sure if that's because I'm not seeking it out, but I feel like it's just something that is really... I don't know. It's really characteristic of news coverage these days, right? Where like, we'll hear about something like nonstop for like two, three weeks. And then it's a question of, is this no longer an issue? Or is it just that like the news got bored and moved on to something else? And like, you never quite know unless you really go out of your way to continue investigating yourself. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I, I'm really shocked that I was expecting there would be like a call to arms from a lot of news outlets and like, let's go do podcast investigative podcast on mm -hmm. this. And let's do like a whole like limited series. And I was expecting a lot more of uh, drumming up of attention yeah. around this. But I haven't seen that yet. Maybe people are working. Maybe on things now. Yeah. I mean, I am just oh. now getting to this recording. And this only, it's not even a deep dive investigative piece. So perhaps, perhaps. Perhaps. Yeah. So, you know, kind of going into some more of your like personal connection to people who've had abortions, you revealed to me that you had a roommate who needed to get an abortion during your time living together. And so can you recount some of what her experience was like and kind of going back into like the logistics of it? Like what were some of the difficulties that she faced? Yeah. Um, so some of the difficulties around this at the time was one, she did not have a vehicle. Mm -hmm. um, two, she did work and she worked on the weekends. Mm -hmm. And three, she was still undecided up until the last moment, really, up until mm -hmm. I think the night before it was like, oh, do wow. I want to go through with this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then decided to. Mm -hmm. Also, a logistical issue around her not having a vehicle was her roommate, myself, did not drive. Yeah. Her friends across the hallway did not drive. Her oh friend below us did not drive. Uh, so <laughs> you had the people that you trusted the most that were in close proximity yeah. did not have a valid driver's license and did not have a vehicle. Yeah. Also, she did not want to tell her parents mm -hmm. who lived about three hours away in Houston, mm -hmm. who did drive, mm -hmm. who did have money to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. She didn't want to let them know. So it was, you know, I can't tell them. They're the only ones I know that I kind of trust, I guess, to some extent. They have a vehicle, yeah. they have money. Also, payment-wise, she split the cost between her and the ex-boyfriend, mm. um, who the father of her unborn child. And he also had some difficulty accepting her choice. Oh, my gosh. In yeah. the end, he yeah. did drive okay. her to the clinic in Austin to Planned Parenthood and, you know, and they performed the abortion and he drove her back. And I remember the only thing that she said about the procedure was that she was really tired and hungry mm. and that's why they got Taco Bell. And she came <sighs> back and went in her room and ate Taco Bell and we never talked about the experience again. She stopped seeing that guy. Mm -hmm. Just, we never discussed it. Yeah. 
That's totally fair. And I imagine it's something that's really difficult to discuss. You know, even if you really trust these people, obviously you're very close, you're roommates, but that doesn't necessarily mean you want to rehash all the details of that. Exactly. And it was, you know, uh, I'm waiting for you to bring the topic up or to talk about it because it's your choice and you don't bring it up. I'm not going to ask you 20 million questions. Exactly. Yeah, that makes total sense. And so beyond your roommate experience, you have a very intimate connection to abortion through your family. You mentioned earlier that, you know, your mom has received an abortion. And so I know you actually interviewed her about her experience in an article for Mother Jones, which was really moving. And I would love to hear just what you kind of learned from your mom during that discussion. Yeah, so my mom and I, single parents, you know, grew up with it was me, my mom's like a Gilmore girl situation, uh, to some extent, Mm -hmm. I like to call it. She told me from a very early age that she had had an abortion. And it was something though, that when she initially told me was difficult for her to tell me to begin with, Mm -hmm. because of some stigma around my classmates and parents and discussions around it, that had occurred when I was a kid. But she told me, and I remember my initial reaction when I was a kid, I did get angry mm-hmm. um, based on like hearing what my friends and their parents were saying mm-hmm. about abortion being wrong. Yeah. And so initially that was difficult and, you know, didn't obviously make her feel good that her daughter, who was a child also was saying negative things yeah. to her yeah. and having to work through my own issues around this. Mm-hmm. And then as I got older, we, you know, we're really close. But what I found out through the interview was um, I did not know that my mom had had two more abortions. I was not aware that Mm -hmm. she had had three abortions. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of a surprise to me Mm -hmm. that she had had multiple abortions. And it was also the first time she actually talked through the experience of finding out she was pregnant and what was going on in her head Mm -hmm. and leading up to the decision of doing this and really me better understanding why she decided. And after we had these conversations, it was 100%. I get you. I feel like if I would have been in your situation, I would have done the exact same thing. And so it was really nice though, to like be able to, to just get all of that off both of our chests and to talk frankly about this. Yeah. Because I have another member of my family that does not want to talk frankly Mm. about her abortion experience. So yeah. I can imagine that really just brought you closer. And I feel like it circles back to what you were saying earlier about just understanding where someone's coming from and you hearing more about the decision-making process that she went through before these three procedures and you being able to say, I see where you're coming from is huge. And I also can see that, you know, not having had the exact same experience, like when you're a younger child or even a teenager, The opinions of your peers matter so much and you're so heavily influenced by that. And like I, so my mom and my dad got divorced when I was like 14. And I remember like I had all these friends who they had parents who were still together, whether or not they were happily married, like I didn't know. It was just like, oh, they're together and like that's how it should be. So for me, it's like I knew that the divorce was like the right thing to happen, but I still like felt like there was this stigma and like it was going to reflect poorly on me. And I was just putting all these societal expectations on like what I thought my mom should do. So I can only imagine that when it's something that's even more taboo to discuss, you know, like abortion versus divorce, that of course you're going to have your own things to work through before you're able to fully accept it. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And, you know, that was why, yeah, I wanted this to be out and 
as an adult too, talking more with those friends from childhood and talking more with other folks that I encounter, like wanting to shed that taboo-ness from this topic. I mm-hmm. think that will help prevent laws like SB8 from happening yeah. in other states if Absolutely. we shed that taboo. Absolutely. Um, may I ask, how old were you when your mom first opened up to you about this? Oh, I feel like I was between eight and 10. Wow. Oh my gosh. I feel like I was still pretty young. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wasn't in middle school. This was even before middle school. Yeah. That happened. That's amazing. Honestly, I just really respect that transparency because I feel like thinking of myself as an eight to 10 year old, to be honest, I don't know (laughs) if I knew what an abortion was, you know, so it would have been even more for me to process. So that's amazing that your mom was so transparent at that age. Yeah, mom was very open and transparent about a lot of different topics that I realized as I get older, not everyone had that experience with their parents and still <laughs> don't have that not. experience. Definitely not. Where it's yeah. like, you know, my fiance too, I was like, did you ever have that sex talk with your parents? You know, like the talk and he was like, no, no, yeah. I'm, you'll be 34 <laughs> in a couple of days. And he's never had the talk. I think it's passed. <laughs> the, the window is really closed for that. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So I guess like, I guess you can only speak to your mom's perspective so much, but like, what was it like for her to open up? I think, especially given the fact that what you mentioned earlier, she was very accustomed to keeping it secret from her family, from other conservative community members. Do you feel like it was maybe like a weight lifted from her to be able to speak openly about it finally? Yeah, I think so. Because, you know, her best friend to my knowledge from what she had said knew about at least one I don't even think my mom fully had opened up to I mean she's still best friends with the same person she was best friends with in high school yeah but I don't think she still had fully opened up to her about everything and I think it was it was like cathartic yeah to to be able to tell someone you know that this is what happened to me Yeah, absolutely. That's really, really powerful. And I think it just is nice to not have to have that bottled up inside and to be able to open up to someone who you can fully trust. Exactly. You know, when we cried and it was crying, it was like, ah, ah, virtual hug because it was on the phone. Yeah. Wow. So, and I think the phone also helped too, to be able to open up as opposed to like being in person during that initial conversation. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is, that is kind of like a nice way to ease into it, honestly. Yeah. So I wanted to transition into the interview that you conducted with Sarah Weddington. And so for those who don't know, she was on the original Roe v. Wade case, and she was the youngest person to ever win a Supreme Court case, only 27 years old. Honestly, that is phenomenal and so impressive. And so I was reading the interview that you conducted with her. I actually learned a lot. So for example, learning that at the time that Roe v. Wade was in contention, California and New York were the only two states to provide legal abortions and that, you know, women weren't even allowed to receive access to contraceptives from University of Texas healthcare centers unless they could prove they were getting married within six weeks. And I was like, that is insane. Are we really pretending that like only married women are having sex? Like it was in the 70s, you know, like people were having sex. The sexual liberation had already taken place. Yeah. Yeah, that's insane. (laughs) wild. So I feel like I learned so much, but like, I would love to hear more about some of the key learnings and takeaways that you had from your discussion with Sarah Weddington. Well, I think the the key takeaway that I had, and like, I've been thinking about this since SB8, is her firm belief, at least at that time, that 
Roe v. Wade will never be overturned. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very telling that she believes so passionately that it will never be overturned because of the benefits that this has allowed women and that she sees this as the benefits outweighing any sort of negative. Yeah. There will always be naysayers and there will always be people in opposition, but you have to keep fighting for this. Mm -hmm. And really it was like the moment that you stop fighting. And I think this is also very telling for how SB8 got passes. Mm -hmm. You start getting complacent and you stop fighting for this and you think, of course, 21st century, nobody's ever going to roll these things back. That's when they do. Yeah. You have to stay vigilant. Yes. And so I still, you know, though, keep thinking that if she doesn't think this will ever be overturned, that it won't be overturned, that we do have to just keep bringing this up and keep fighting that's the main takeaway for me. And also, I mean, Sarah Weddington has been defined by Roe v. Wade. Yeah. And for better or for worse, and has gotten a lot of flack over the years for her participation, you know, being called an opportunist. What? Negative things. Yeah, there was all kinds of like she used her client to be able to um, elevate her career. That is wild. A lot from... So Linda Coffey is the Roe in this case. And Linda Mm -hmm. Coffey died a few years ago. And there was a really good documentary that came out on FX recently Mm -hmm. that talks about Linda Coffey's life. And Linda Coffey had been outspoken for a period of time being Mm anti-abortion and being part of the anti-abortion movement. And she had come out and said that she had been used by Sarah Weddington and different things over time. And then pretty much on what they consider like her deathbed confession, it was like, actually, I was paid by the anti-abortion movement. And like, I still care about abortion rights. It gets all, it gets all kinds of intertwined and. Okay. I need to dive into the history of this even further. Like what scandal and like corruption, how insane. Yeah. And Linda Coffey, too, she died in Katy, Texas, outside of Houston. So there's still all of this is like very Texas, Mm. all of it very much drenched in Texas. So it's a fascinating, I mean, fascinating case. And yeah, for someone who's 27 and a woman at that time. Oh, my God. To be able to win. Yeah. uh, And Sarah Weddington's still alive. She has Mm -hmm. a leadership institute in Austin. How I first met her, she came to my university, Texas State University, Mm -hmm. and talked to us about leadership. Wow. How powerful. It's so fascinating to me that you're like, oh, she got a lot of flack because I'm like, what a badass, like 27 years old, like pioneering for women's rights. I'm like, how could you say that? Even if you don't agree with abortion, I'm like, come on, you have to give the woman some accolades there. Like, that's insane. And I just think it's crazy to say that she's like an opportunist who's using this to launch her career because couldn't you say that about literally any lawyer who has taken on like a high profile or celebrity case? Honestly, it's like, no, everyone needs representation, you know, so I I don't see how you can say that she specifically was opportunistic and trying to launch her career, but not other lawyers. Exactly. I agree. Yeah. And I have never seen her that way. Um, But the the argument against yeah. against her, at least when she was younger, was that. But no, I definitely think like she is is not an opportunist and has worked her ass off to get where she is. And uh, yeah, I sing her praises. So I don't have anything negative to say about Sarah Whittington. So for context, when was the interview that you conducted with her? I believe it was 2019. 
Oh, it was earlier than that. I think it was 2015. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And 2015 was around a time too when there were grumblings around the country of eroding abortion rights. Mm. And so that's why I wanted to interview her was that was like a beginning of mm-hmm. people talking. Yeah. We need to to reverse these things. We need to get rid of Roe v. Wade. I would be so curious to hear her perspective present day, given everything that's recently happened. Same. Yeah. No, I would love I would love to talk to her about what's going on because I haven't seen her in any of the coverage I've read mm-hmm. uh, being quoted or, or anything like that. So I don't know if if that's a personal reason or what. But no, I definitely if I'm working on something around this, need to reach out to her and see how she's doing. Yeah. What does she think about this? Because she still lives in Texas, too. Oh, so. my gosh. So I guess, you know, from your perspective, based on the nature of the current legislation and everything we've discussed, do you feel like her argument still stands that Roe v. Wade will never be overturned? I do. I do think that still stands. Mm-hmm. I don't think this will ever be overturned. Yeah. Roe v. Wade will not be overturned. States can try. Yeah. Yeah. I truly hope so. And I, I do agree. I think it's a little scary, but I think at the core of it, you know, constitutionality is already being brought up. And I do think that the fight will continue to make sure that this stays intact. Yes. Yeah. So I guess in closing, I would just love to get any thoughts you have. Like you said, you are a native Texan, even though you're not living there today. Just how do you feel about the fact that Texas continues to be a battleground state for abortion rights, even 48 years after the verdict for Roe v. Wade was reached? Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising, sadly. I do think, though, that there has been slow change Mm -hmm. in the demographics in Texas and the population makeup in Texas and people moving in from other states. That one of the reasons I don't think Roe v. Wade will be overturned is that I think in Texas that we will see a change in who our leadership is Mm -hmm. based on these demographic changes. And I have hope that the folks that are currently in Texas and new folks that will come in will be able to make positive change. I don't see Texas staying Republican for too much longer. Mm. Um, Wow. That's really powerful to hear. I feel like that's so ingrained in the national perception of Texas, at least as an outsider, you know, to my knowledge, I think it's really fascinating to hear you say that you've seen a lot of transformation that will lead to, you know evolution let's say of perspectives and beliefs yeah you know and believe it or not texas at one point was a democratic state we mm-hmm. have had a democratic governor and before mm-hmm. we've had a woman governor before mm-hmm. so we can have these things again yeah yeah exactly but- it's possible Well, Jordan, thank you so much. This was really such a powerful discussion. And I appreciate you just opening up and sharing so much of your expertise as well as your personal connection to this. And I would love if you could just end by plugging where any listeners can find some of your previous work or find you on social media. Yeah, so I can be found at CNN. I am a producer on a podcast called Chasing Life, hosted by Dr. Sanjay Gupta. So my more professional life can be found on Chasing Life. I also, with uh, Local Switchboard NYC, localswitchboard.nyc is our website. And I also do uh, a really ridiculous horror comedy podcast called Pod of Madness as well, because I, you know, am ridiculous. It's called (laughs) podofmadness.com is where you can find that. Okay, love that. Perfect listening for October. Yes, if you want to hear some interviews with some, some horror directors and writers and us just talking 
talking shit. Oh my gosh. Um, what great. don't you do? No. That's amazing. <laughs> well, thank you again. It was really great. And, you know, as always, you can find the podcast on Instagram at Interstates and Heartbreak, all spelled out. You can find me at Leslie Nope, L E S L I E G N O P E. Thank you so much. Let's be exclusive. Subscribe to Interstates and Heartbreak wherever you listen to podcasts for more firsthand stories about the unglamorous side of dating in Los Angeles. And while you're at it, you can write me a love letter with a rating and review on Apple. See you next Sunday.